If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah, chapter 3. I'm sure you will agree that one of the things that we love, uh, that is to say, not just we Christians, but we uh, Americans, we as a culture, uh, probably we as a global community, one of the things we love is second chances. If you look at any of the most popular movies or the most popular books or even some of the most popular songs, one of the, the main themes you will see through all that is people seeking a second chance at something. Uh, they have uh, lived their life in such a way that they have messed it up. Uh, they have gone on the wrong course and what they are looking for is a way out. They are looking for a way to, to set things right, a second chance, a do-over, a mulligan so they can get their life back on track. And this is very much the need of Israel as we approach the book of Zechariah. You will remember at this point in their history, uh, several uh, thousands of years before this, they were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. God did this to keep His promise to His servant Abraham, uh, whom He said uh, through him and through his descendants He would bless all of the world. And so in redeeming Israel out of slavery, he brought them to himself. God made them his special people above all the other peoples of the world. God gave Israel his love and his law, desiring to be their God, even as he desired them to be his people. Yet we know that they rebelled against him. Instead of cherishing his law, instead of glorying in his love, they sinned. They ignored his law, spurned his love, and worshipped other gods. And despite being called back to faithfulness to him, instead of despite being warned over and over again, turn back to me and I will forgive you, they persisted in their sin and eventually experienced the promised judgment of God for that sinful rebellion. That judgment was seen in many ways, but most profoundly was it seen in the exile where God allowed Israel's neighboring enemies to invade, destroy their cities, and carry them off to foreign lands. And yet God also had mercy on Israel. Though they had broken their promises to be God's people, He never broke His promise to be their God. So in love and mercy, He didn't let Israel be completely destroyed, but instead He saved a remnant and brought them back to the promised land once again, to rebuild, to renew His people Israel the way that they should have always been. And that's very much the theme as we get to the book of Zechariah. God is pointing His people back to their past and He is telling them, remember where you've come from. Remember what has happened before. I'm giving you a second chance. Don't blow it. Don't walk down the same road as your fathers. Don't commit the same sins and find yourself in the same predicament. So in the opening of the book, we read, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? 
but my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants before the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. God wanted Israel to remember her past so that she wouldn't repeat it. And in the process of moving forward by faith in God, part of the, that renewing process, part of the essential nature of being Israel was that the very worship of God would be renewed among God's people. And we already saw how the prophet Haggai was sent to encourage the people to finish rebuilding the temple where the right worship of God could be carried out. But now, but now, not just a location for worship, but the very means of worship needed to be renewed as well. And so as we find ourselves in the book of Zechariah chapter 3, this is what we see, the restoration of the very people of God through its worship. And yet there is a question that hangs over our passage. Was Israel really ready now to trust God? Were they really prepared to live as His people? Or would they fall back into the same sins as before? The book of Zechariah is basically made up of two sections, chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 9 through 14. And it's in this first section, these uh, fantastic visions and oracles that Zechariah has, that we see chapter 3 and we see this vision of God doing a work to renew His people, to bring them to Himself and to reestablish the right worship among His people. So let me encourage you to follow along uh, as I read chapter 3. Again, Zechariah is being given visions, and here's what he said. Here's what he says. Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who you are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. May God bless the reading of his word. More than being just about one man, this vision was about all of God's people. It was about the promise of God to restore the spiritual life 
that they once had. And this morning, as we will see, this, is, this isn't even just about ancient Israel. This is also about every one of our lives as well. What we have here from God is a promise that we today can know and be known by Him. And in order to understand this vision and this promise and how this chapter affects us, we want to see essentially three things, three, uh, three scenes, three movements throughout this chapter. First is the surprising problem the surprising problem. The vision opens with a scene reminiscent of a courtroom. As judge, the angel of the Lord is acting as God's representative. And before him, as the one on trial, is Joshua the high priest. And like a prosecutor, off to Joshua's right is Satan himself. And because this takes place in the sanctuary, you get the impression that this was the beginning of uh, the, 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 re, the reinstatement of the proper worship of God at the temple. And in fact, Joshua is approaching, uh, perhaps ready to give the sacrifice, ready to commence the worship of God through the offering of blood. He is coming on behalf of God's people in accord uh, with the system of sacrifices that God himself had established. And yet it is in this preparation, the very prelude to uh, the formal worship of Israel, that he encounters this threat of accusation. We are told Satan was standing at his right hand ready to accuse him. Well, what was this accusation? What was the accusation that Satan was putting against Joshua the high priest? It was simply this, that he was unfit to be the high priest. You, you, you can imagine if in the midst of uh, our gathering together here for worship, you can imagine if uh, if perhaps it was even a new facility that we had built, that we had perhaps uh, had this one destroyed by some freak accident. We had been meeting somewhere else and we had rebuilt, uh, we had rebuilt the auditorium. We were preparing for the very first time of worship. We were all excited and happy. We were gathered together. And just as uh, uh, me or whoever was here as the preacher was preparing to open the word and proclaim, uh, someone jumped up and said, that man is unfit to lead this service. He is unfit to serve as the shepherd of you, God, people. Well, I would just take your breath away. It would not only take the wind out of your sails uh, and preparing to, uh, to worship God, but it would just throw you like, what in the world is going on? What is, what, what is the problem here? What, what's going to happen? Likewise, this is exactly the situation in which Joshua finds himself in the midst of this vision Zechariah has given. Satan declares that Joshua the high priest, he accuses that he is unfit to be the mediator for the people of God. Specifically, we are told, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. This is the source of the accusation. This is why Joshua come, uh, uh, Satan comes and accuses Joshua of being unable and unfit to serve as high priest. And again, in order to get the not only the surprising nature, but the serious nature of this accusation, you have to understand the role that Joshua would have played as high priest. He was the one who was called to intercede to, before God, before all the people of Israel. He was the one who would enter the temple once a year, having purified himself with the offering of blood for his own sins. And then he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the whole people. He was the one that stood between Israel and God. He was the one who made atonement for the sins of Israel. Therefore, if he was not able, if he was not fit to do that work, then there was no atonement. There was no sacrifice. There was no offering, not just for Joshua, but for the entire people of God. 
and part of the ritual ceremony of cleansing that would have taken place to show uh, God willing that externally, externally, Joshua was as clean as he was internally before God. Joshua would have bathed from head to toe. He would have put on clean clothes. He would have put on the high priestly vestments. And then and only then would he have prepared to go in and offer the sacrifice before the Lord. And yet now we see he does not stand in clean garments, but filthy garments. The original language is even more graphic than we might think, for the word filthy here means to be covered in excrement. So here is Joshua about to enter the very presence of God on behalf of the whole nation. He is supposed to be clean, clothed in pure white linen, representing the glory and the holiness of God. And instead, his, his clothes are covered in smeared feces. Now, as gross as that sounds, as repugnant an idea and even vision in our mind's eye that that is, that's not even the real problem here. You see, the passage is not about clothes. Remember, this is a vision. And in visions... Things represent reality. In real life, Joshua would never have dared to show up to the temple this way. Probably the other priest wouldn't have even letting it close looking like that. And so the problem here is not that he, he just didn't wash his clothes when he showed up to do his job. The real problem is, in the vision, he is forced to wear this because it is reflective of his own heart. Joshua is a sinner. And it doesn't matter how much ritual cleansing he goes through, he will always be a sinner. He will always have a filthy heart before God. This is why Joshua offers no defense. I mean, after all, we were thinking, wouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't he want to defend himself? After all, that's what we do, isn't it? The moment someone points out a fault that we have committed, the moment someone points out a sin in our life, the first thing we do is defend ourselves. Oh, no, no, wait a minute, that's not my fault. I mean, that person was supposed to have responsibility over there and, and I didn't know that and I don't feel very well and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, just stop because, yeah, you're at fault. You've sinned. There's no need to make defense. Just own up to it, confess it, and move on. And this is why Joshua offers no defense either. He knows he is guilty. He is a sinner. He is unclean before the Lord. There is no adequate defense for him before a holy and righteous God. And again, this is not just his problem now. This is all of Israel's problem. Because if he is unfit to stand before a holy and righteous God, then all of the people are unfit to stand before a holy and righteous God. All of the nation stands defiled before God in the same way. They all might have just shown up in clothes covered in fecal matter. The vision is saying that all of Israel stands as sinners represented by Joshua himself, the mediator who is a sinner, defiled before God, unfit to offer the sacrifice, unfit to make atonement on behalf of the people. Here they are on the precipice of being renewed and rebuilt as the people of God. They have been saved out of exile. They've been brought back. And, they, and though they've had a kind of a slow start, they've finally finished the building. They are going, perhaps on that very first day of atonement, to offer the sacrifices. And Satan says, stop. We can't go on. Because all of you are unfit. Even your high priest is unfit. You're not fit. You're not worthy to offer worship of God. So what do they do? How, how can they move forward? How can they proceed to do what God wants them to do if they are unfit and unworthy to do it? 
It's in light of this surprising problem that we see, secondly, the gracious provision. The gracious provision. How does the Lord himself respond to this filthiness? We've seen how Joshua responds. He's just staying there silent, guilty before his God, guilty before his accuser. But how does the Lord respond to the filth that he sees? How does the Lord respond to the accuser of souls? Well, first we read uh, that he out and out rebukes Satan. He says, the angel of the Lord says, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen, who has chosen Israel, rebuke you. Now, this doesn't mean, it's not like God is saying, you know, shame on you, devil. Shame on you for being here and saying this. That's not what he's saying. Basically, he's telling Satan to shut up. He says, just stop it. The accusations are done. I will hear no more from you. Why? Because God says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? They say, no, what does that have to do with telling Satan to be quiet? What does this have to do with anything? Well, let me help you understand it maybe by, by telling you a, a story that is famous for being associated with this text. Many of you will know, back in the 1700s, there was a very famous evangelist named John Wesley throughout England and even the Americas. And he was instrumental in uh, a great many people coming to uh, the Lord through something called a revival called the Great Awakening. But before he was John Wesley, the great preacher, he was little Johnny, the six-year-old. And little Johnny woke up what would, to what would have been a horror for anyone at any time living anywhere, and that is a house burning, smoldering in flames. And somehow in the midst of uh, smelling the smoke and seeing the flames getting the family out, uh, one of a number of children, uh, little Johnny was left in the house. And uh, he had ran up to the second story and was looking out the window. And some of the neighbors saw him. And they ran over, one jumping on the shoulders of the other one, uh, reached into the window, grabbed him out, and ran just as the roof collapsed. And the whole house went up in smoke and flame. And I can only imagine it was a traumatic experience. Wesley himself says he never forgot that day. And I think we can understand why. But what's interesting is that when he got older... And he became a Christian as he was reading through the totality of God's word. He came across this text. He came across this verse. And he said, just like Joshua, also I am a brand plucked from the fire. What did he mean? Well, he didn't just mean, Wesley didn't just mean that he was, he was saved out from being burned alive. No, he meant that he was saved because he was God's chosen instrument to be used in bringing revival both to the colonies and to continental Europe. In other words, he was specifically saved for a task. And we see this in part even here when, when the Lord rebukes Satan, what does he say? The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Why would he say that? Because of what he is just now getting ready to say. Am I not the God who makes sovereign choices? Am I not the God who chooses his people? Likewise, I have chosen this man, Joshua. Joshua also was a brand plucked from the flame, not of a burning house, but the holocaust of the exile. So many families were killed in battle or killed and died off as they went into exile, but not Joshua, not his line, not his father, not his predecessors. They were preserved by God, so much so that specifically Joshua was God's man, God's choice to be high priest as the worship of God was restored at this time among Israel. And so what we see is that Joshua was not only called by a sovereign God, 
But more than that, he was also cleansed by a gracious God that he might serve in that role. The Lord rebuked Satan because Joshua was his choice to serve. But more than that, he ensured that the accusation could not stand. In verse 4, we read this. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, it is to Joshua, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Rather than tell Joshua, Go get yourself cleaned up and come back and try again, the Lord himself cleanses Joshua. It's God who says, Strip off those soiled garments, and he gives him clean ones to wear. And the significance is stunning. Because as the Lord says, this isn't about clothes. It's not about what Joshua was wearing. What he was wearing symbolizes his heart. It's something far more profound. It's not about the cleansing of clothes. It's about the cleansing of souls. And I'm sure you've had the experience that I have when it comes to this. You invite people to come to church and one of the, one of the things you all the time is, well, I need to get my life straightened out before I come to church i got to get cleaned up. i got to get sobered up. i got to get my life back on track. And then I'll be ready to come to church. The problem is they never come. Why? Because they can't clean themselves up by the, on their own. They can, never, they can never get themselves clean enough, right enough, sober enough to come to church and be acceptable by God. They can't do that. But they don't understand that. Yet the beauty of this text and the rest of the scriptures is simply this. Though you cannot clean yourself up, God can clean you up. God is the one who can cleanse you. God is the one who can not only forgive you, but take the guilt away of your sin, who can cleanse the stain and bring you to himself. Notice he doesn't even just clean off Joshua's garments. Wouldn't that have been something? If God just said, be clean, and he washed the garments, he doesn't even do that. He removes Joshua's garments and gives him a whole new set of garments. What is he saying? He says, Joshua even... Even the cleaning up of your life is not enough. You need a righteousness that surpasses anything you yourself can ever possibly have. You need a superior, a perfect righteousness that only I myself can give you. And so he gives them these pure white robes that symbolize this perfect righteousness. And he tells Joshua to put them on. And we see this, this cleansing, this, this purification taking place as Joshua, or as a, the prophet Zechariah even gets ahead of himself a little bit here. And frankly, this makes me like Zechariah because he's not dispassionate. He's not standing back watching this thing saying, uh-huh, okay, and so, for, so now the angel says, take the clothes off. Okay, I got it. No, he is, he is wrapped up in this vision. He, he is so passionate about it. He sees these filthy garments stripped off and this fresh robe put on, and he calls out and he says, and give him a clean turban too. And I can only imagine at that moment suddenly he realizes what he's just done. He's just commanded the Lord himself to do something. And perhaps Zacharias said, oh, you know, and he kind of stands back. I mean, what, what, what have I just done? And yet it was the will of God to do that very thing because he says, yes, take off the dirty turban and give him a clean one as well. Now, why was the turban so important to Zachariah? I mean, he had, he had the cloak, right? Wasn't that enough? No, and here's why. Because if you've read Exodus 28, if you've read the law, and I hope, <laughs> hope that you have, you will know that when the high priest went in, the turban that he was wearing was not only gleaming white like the rest of his linen robe, but there was a gold plate that was worn across, fastened with a blue thread that said in Hebrew, holy to the Lord. 
it was the perfect representation to say, I have gone through the ritual cleansing. And hopefully, because he was a true believer in God, he would have sought with all of his might to truly be holy before the Lord and to offer the appropriate sacrifices for himself when he wasn't. And now he stands the Day of Atonement, having offered as much as he can remember all the covering for the sins that he has done as an individual. And now he puts on the clean vestments. And finally, the last thing he puts on is this declarative statement, going in before the glory of God himself holy to the Lord. Not just him, but now all of the people coming before God are declared holy. And this is why Joshua, um, Joshua needs this turban in Zechariah's mind. He says, he says, it's not enough just to have the clean robes. He says he needs everything. He needs that declaration that he is holy so that me and all the rest of God's people will have a pure cleansing of the filth of our sins. And that's exactly what God does. He makes it so that the representative of the people could truly be right before him so that all the people can be right before him. And while this is wonderful for Joshua and for Israel, those of us that have read the Bible and know God know there's still a problem here. Namely this, how can God do this? How can he just clean Joshua up like this. He is clearly a sinful man. He himself knows it. It is illustrated by the visionary form of his clothing. He's not just a little bit sinful. He is stinking sinful. He is morally a filthy man before God. And so how can God just say, okay, you're forgiven. You're cleansed. After all, he's God. Did we not just study for 10 weeks that God is a holy God who punishes sin? By very definition of his character, he cannot simply ignore it. Yet the Bible does not leave us hanging with this as a question mark in our minds. It goes on very specifically to tell us how God can forgive him by showing us the lasting promise. The lasting promise. This is the third and final thing we see from our text. Zechariah has been given a vision of Joshua standing in filthy garments before the Lord. He has seen the Lord himself cleanse him from that filth, representing the cleansing of his sins. And then he says to him, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The Lord is telling Joshua and his friends, that is the other priests that are sitting with him, that they are something more than just priests. As important as it is for what they do, there is also a greater purpose in their service to God and his people. God says, Joshua, you and your friends, you and the priests, you are a sign. You are a sign pointing to something greater than yourself. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, think of it like this. Think about, think about it like watching a sports game on television. You, you, you tune in and nowadays everything's high def, right? I prefer the low def myself, particularly when I'm on television, but that's another story. Everything's high def, right? So, you know, so you're seeing all the details, you're hearing all the plays and everything else. Uh, but does that, is that the same as actually being in the stadium? Is that the same as sitting in the stands? Is it, it, no, it's not. It's not the same. 
In some sense, the television that you're watching points to the reality, but the reality is far greater. Likewise, likewise, Zechariah is telling Joshua here what we see flushed out in the rest of the Bible, and that is this. These priests are standing between God and Israel, offering up sacrifices on behalf of their sins and the sins of the nation, that God might be at peace with them. They are serving to make atonement, offering the blood of bulls and goats and sheep, but God says all of that is pointing to something else. He says in the language used throughout all the rest of the Old Testament of the Messiah, Behold, I am sending my servant the branch, and through him I will remove the iniquity of the entire land in a single day. And of course, when we get to the New Testament, it's clear that Joshua stood in a long line of priests who pointed forward to that perfect final Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was as he hung on the cross crying out, It is finished! that every single sacrifice that was ever offered in faith to God suddenly popped with reality and meaning and true efficacious existence. If he had not come, those sacrifices would have had no meaning for they all pointed forward to him. More than that, it was the day that they ended. And atonement, lasting full, perfect atonement for the sins, not just of Israel, but for all of God's people for all time was achieved. Thus, the book of Hebrews over three chapters explains it like this. Now we have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Christ does not offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. For every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Joshua could only serve as a priest because there was one coming who would take the punishment he deserved for his filth and his sin. There was one who was coming who would earn him a righteousness that would be counted as his own. And yet, again, this passage is not just about Joshua and Israel. This morning, all of us stand like Joshua before God. All of us are guilty as sinners before God. All of us are in need of one who will come between us and God and make atonement for our sins as well, lest we face God's righteous and just judgment against them. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh, perfect without any defilement from sin, and as high priest not just for Israel but for all peoples, offering not the blood of animals but the blood of his own body as a final perfect sacrifice for sin so that all who trust in him as Savior find God not only forgiving their sins but cleansing them from the guilt of their unrighteousness and counting as their own the righteousness of Christ. It is in this way that God provides for lasting atonement for sins. A cleansing that removes our guilt and imparts righteousness to us that we may not only be a part of God's family, that we may be acceptable to Him, but that we may stand on the final day. In his book, Death by Love, Pastor Mark Driscoll shares a letter a letter of counsel that he wrote to a young woman who was struggling with guilt and shame because of her sinful past. And in this letter, he describes a woman 
who had similar struggles in a similar past. Listen to what he says. A friend of mine had been married to a woman he dearly loved for many years, yet they were never as close and intimate as he desired, and he could not figure out why. It was because his wife was, like you, filled with shame. She had been molested as a girl, raped as a young woman, and promiscuous throughout much of her teen years. She even cheated on her husband during their engagement and did not share these shameful dark secrets with him. After many years, she finally told her husband who she truly was and what she had truly done and what had been truly done to her. The truth devastated her husband, who would have never married her had he known of her infidelity during their engagement and possibly would have walked away from her as damaged goods had he only known about the many times she was molested as a young girl, raped as a young woman, and, and promiscuous in her teens. At this point, she feared that her husband would leave her and want nothing to do with her. Then he did the unthinkable. He left their home, and she did not know where he was going or if he would ever return. But because he knew the gospel of Jesus Christ, he went to the store and purchased for her a new, clean, white nightgown. He returned home and asked her to clothe herself in white, which she did. He then said that he had chosen to see her not by what she had done or by what had been done to her, but instead solely by what Jesus had done for her to forgive her sin and cleanse her filth. He embraced her and prayed for her, and she wept tears that purified her soul as her sin was scorned by the love of Jesus and her husband, who was filled with the Spirit of God. It's a true story and an amazing picture of what God does for all who come before him with their sin. It is only because of the sacrifice of Christ that God not only cleanses our sins, forgiving us, but removes the shame away from those sins. This morning, for those of us who have confessed faith in Christ, is a time to continue, a time to continue to rejoice and trust in the cleansing that God has given to us, the righteousness that He has given to us that is not ours, that we might stand faultless before His throne. And for those of you that have never looked to Christ in faith, knowing this is what he did for you in the cross, it is the time for you to trust in that sacrifice this morning. God, we are thankful for the amazing work that you have done for us, the astonishing work, the amazing grace that you have displayed through the cross. God, we are thankful that a man like Joshua could stand, not because of his own righteousness, but God, he could stand cleansed from all of his sin because of what you were going to do through your own son, Joshua, Jesus the Christ. Father, we pray. We pray this morning that we would be encouraged. We would be renewed in our own desire to give you love and worship and service by being reminded of the powerful imagery of what you have done for us through your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.